The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, remind you that the more that things change, the more we need to depend on those things that never change. Thanks for being part of the show. I appreciate it as always. The website, RabbiDanielLappin.com, as you well know. And, uh, you know, I often speak of uh, the early 60s as being the most convenient milestone to mark the beginning of the huge changes that have racked America. Um, I speak about the birth control tablet coming on the market in 1962, and uh, I speak about a number of things. But what I've never mentioned before uh, is something that my good friend William Federer pointed out, and uh, he's so right about this, is that there were speeches made in the early 60s that no public figure could ever make today. And there was a Democrat in the Florida legislature. His name was Herlong, Albert Herlong. And uh, he read on, in January 1963, he said that he wants to read into the public record a list of communist goals for America so that people should be ever vigilant against these things and should know that regardless of who ends up pushing these policies, even if they don't proudly declare themselves to be communists, everybody should be aware of exactly who they are. So uh, there are seven of them. Listen to this. Eliminate prayer or any phase of religious expression in the schools on the grounds that it violates the principle of separation of church and state. That's right. The communists figured out this is what they have to do. But everyone who pushed for separation of church and state was careful to avoid labeling themselves communists. But thanks to Albert Herlong, Florida Democrat, uh, we have now in the official record, these are the goals of the Communist Party in the United States. Number two, discredit American culture, discredit the family as an institution, encourage promiscuity and divorce. Fantastic. And number three, present homosexual, homosexuality, degeneracy and promiscuity as normal, natural and healthy. Um, number four, infiltrate churches and replace revealed religion with social justice. Number five, discredit the Bible and emphasize the need for intellectual maturity, which does not need a religious crutch. Number six, control the schools. Use them as transmission belts for socialism and current communist propaganda. Number seven, soften the curriculum. Get control of teachers' associations. Put party line in textbooks. Control student newspapers. Pretty good. This was 1963. Uh, public record in the Florida legislature. How about a speech? by Ronald Reagan in 1961. Uh, it was entitled, Ronald Reagan Speaks Out Against Socialized Medicine. And here are some quotes from that speech. Now, back in 1927, an American socialist, Norman Thomas, six times candidate for president on the Socialist Party ticket, said the American people would never vote for socialism. But he said under the name of liberalism, 
the American people will adopt every fragment of the socialist program. One of the traditional methods of imposing statism or socialism on a people has always been by way of medicine. It's very easy to disguise a medical program as a humanitarian project. James Madison in 1788 said, There are more instances of the abridgment of the freedom of the people by gradual and silent encroachment of those in power than by violent and sudden usurpations. We want no further encroachment on these individual liberties and freedoms. We do not want socialized medicine. If you don't reject this, I promise you, this program will pass and behind it will come other federal programs that will invade every area of freedom as we have known until one day we will awake to find that we have socialism. And you and I are going to spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children's children what it was once like in America when men were free. Um, Just a couple of years, two or three years before Reagan's speech on socialized medicine, uh, the, the head of the Soviet Union was Nikolai, Nikita Khrushchev, and um, he told a guy who was President Eisenhower's Secretary of Agriculture, his name was Ezra Taft Benson, your children's children will live under communism. You Americans are so gullible. No, you won't accept communism outright. It will keep feeding you small doses of socialism until you will finally wake up find that you already have communism. We won't have to fight you. We will so weaken your economy until you fall like overripe fruit into our hands. Well, the Soviet Union, of course, is no more. But socialism is still very much alive, and the American economy has been severely hurt and damaged by socialism. Uh, And it's not been imposed by the Communist Party or imposed by Russia. It's been seductively inserted into our culture uh, by the universities, by the social elite, uh, by people who have bought into it as a moral system, replacing what used to serve as a bulwark against the seduction of socialism, and that was Judeo-Christian biblical thinking. Once that was tossed out, people became fair game for this. You know, uh, this past Wednesday, okay, um, November 7th, um, the Bolshevik Revolution happened 100 years ago. It was November 1917. Now, of course, they hadn't yet adopted the modern calendar in, in uh, Russia, so they called it October, but it was actually uh, November the 7th, the Bolshevik Revolution, and here we are 100 years down the road. They haven't done too badly, I'm sorry to say. One would have thought that it would have been discredited. But the truth is that as long as you provide as an alternative only a vacuum, socialism will always thrive. It is only in the context of a moral and philosophical framework that stands reliable and internally coherent, such as a Judeo-Christian framework, uh, that socialism can be defeated. It can never be pushed out by nothing. It can only be pushed out by something. And uh, one of the big mistakes that we make here in the West 
is thinking that socialism or communism and capitalism are the opposites. Not true. Socialism provides an entire moral framework. Even its language speaks of socialism and the poor and those in need. Uh, capitalism is a description of a free market economy. But a free market economy isn't a moral system. Capitalism needs an accompanying moral system, namely Judeo-Christian thinking, in order to thrive. If you strip away the moral system, capitalism will surrender to socialism. And I think we're, we're kind of seeing that all happening right now. And I think it's just worth thinking about it. Uh, it's a hundred years ago, the Bolshevik Revolution, and in that hundred years, how many people have been killed in the name of the left, in the name of socialism? Millions of Soviet citizens under Stalin, probably as many as 30 million. I think Robert Conquest says a little higher than that. Mao Zedong in China, uh, again in the name of, of communism, uh, 50 million of his, uh, that's right, 50 million people. Adolf Hitler in World War II, but wait, you shriek. That was fascism, that was Nazism, that wasn't communism, that wasn't the left. Uh, actually, yes, it was. Nazism is a creation of the left. That's why it was called National Socialism. That's what Nazi is a contraction of. So this is something that uh, we really ought to devote a show to at some time in the near future because people really do have to understand that uh, uh, com communism and fascism and Nazism are not at opposite ends of the spectrum. They're both at the same end of the spectrum, robbing the freedom of humanity and uh, seizing the power in the heartless core of government. Uh, at the other end of that spectrum is, uh, that's right, Judeo-Christian Bible-based thinking. That is the spectrum line. The culture, the religion, the moral philosophy that built the West, and on the other side, the moral philosophy, namely socialism, that, well, it's come pretty close to destroying the left. That's, that's really what it seems like. And uh, uh, not only that, talking of, uh, of fascism, but this past uh, Thursday night was the anniversary of uh, Kristallnacht in Germany, right? Kristallnacht uh, was the, the night, November the 9th and 10th, um, where in 1938, right, just a few months before the outbreak of war, when uh, the, the German government made pretty clear what its plan was to, uh, to bring terror to the people of Germany. This was an attack on Jews. Smart people saw the writing on the wall, and uh, in smart people who were not Jewish saw the writing on the wall and realized they had to get out. But um, Kristallnacht, a horrible, terrifying night. You know, imagine you were a young child, a teenager, and um, and Kristallnacht takes place in in the city you're living. It took place all across Germany and Austria, but uh, try and imagine what what's like. Thirty thousand Jewish men hauled off to concentration camps after people, um, uh, jackbooted, uniformed thugs, break the door down of your house, and um, uh, it, it it was. It was the beginning of the end, of course, and it was uh, quite a shocking thing. But that, the anniversary of that was uh, this first past Thursday night. And why do I tell you all of this? Because the world, the free world, or the West, has, has faced 
many perils. And the, the most powerful perils it's faced have been the left, Nazism and communism, uh, which, which we saw in uh, the 20th century and the tremendous damage it inflicted on the world. And it's now facing another one based on Islam. And here is where I think it's worthwhile remembering that we are looking at a culture war, uh, a, a titanic struggle between the culture of the Koran and the twin civilizations of the Bible, Judaism and Christianity. Now, the, um, the people that seem to have the best handle on this are the Jews, the land of Israel. That's pretty much where we see this happening. We see success. We see the ability to cope. In other words, the peril Israel faces is so much more severe than anything that any other country faces. In terms of 5 million Jews surrounded by 100 million Arabs that are indoctrinated and uh, subject to ceaseless, relentless propaganda about killing the Jews. And Israel not only functions, but I have to tell you, having just returned recently, the level of stress is much lower than in the United States. In terms of people walking around anywhere in Israel late at night, women walking safely, kids traveling around town entirely on their own, I, I noticed that the um, bus stop buttons, you know, the buttons in the bus in order to uh, indicate to the driver you want to get off at the next stop, uh, in Israel buses, they're down low because so many kids ride the buses themselves. It's, um, it's a country that has managed to succeed. Now, we really do need to understand Israel a little bit better because uh, we are not succeeding here. Uh, the indignity and outrage that the TSA inflicts on travelers every single day in the airports of the United States of America, we should be ashamed of ourselves for docilely allowing uh, this aggressive uh, assault on our freedoms. Uh, Israel doesn't do that. You can get uh, on planes in Israel, and you come eye to eye with a skilled um, uh, airport security operative who asks you a few questions and then either sends you off to another room for, for uh, main questioning or uh, lets you continue. You don't have to strip. You don't have to. It's a different game because they understand the, the nature of the danger. In America, we think the danger is bullets and bombs. In Israel, they understand its people and ideologies. And more than that, they've also understood that uh, if you can uh, cut off the blood flow of terror in the form of money, uh, you are well on your way to succeeding. And sure enough, Israel for many years already has led the world in knowing how to strike at the terror financial network. Only now, for the first time, is a lot of this information released in a book that was published this past week called Harpoon, Inside the Covert War Against Terrorism's Money Masters. It's a fabulous book. It's a non-stop cannot put it down, eyes bugging out of my head kind of read. It's uh, by uh, a woman, Nitsana Darshan Leitner, and um, 
the uh, the uh, the book is so amazing that I asked if I could interview her in order to let you all know about this book. She's in Israel, and um, and I'll apologize uh, in advance. Once again, the the audio quality is is not what I really would like for the interview, but uh, nonetheless, here it comes. I know that you are going to enjoy it. Uh, our website is rabbidaniellappin.com, and when you head over there, I want you to take a look at a resource called Clash of Destiny, Decoding the Secrets of Israel and Islam. And the reason I say that is because that is where we lay out the heart of this titanic struggle between the culture of the Quran and the twin civilizations of the Bible. And the reality of that and the reality of the battle being waged every hour of every day in Israel is, I think, what brings to life the drama of this book, Harpoon, and my interview with its author, uh, Nitsana Darshan, Le uh, Dar 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 Darshan Leitner. Um, okay, so I hope you're going to enjoy it, and do let me know, would you? Uh, because, as you know, it's very rare that I interview authors on this show, very rare that I recommend books, and I do recommend you all. I really think you should order this one. You won't be sorry. It's, uh, it's stuff you need to know about how uh, terrorism is tackled effectively and, uh, and how we have made, particularly during the Obama years, terrible mistakes. Anyway, all of that coming right up as I talk to Nitsana. And uh, do let me know at my website. Contact me through the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. I'd like to know if you enjoyed it, particularly uh, if it was worth airing for you, given the, the less than perfect uh, audio. any rate, uh, your rabbi, that's me. Let's get ready for the interview coming right up. Don't go away. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and Retirement Curveball is a book by a finance expert that I respect, Dr. Tom McPhee. Whether you are thinking about retirement, are already retired, or have never given the big R even a thought, now is the time to welcome the contents of this book into your mind. The book is filled with compelling aha moments and will motivate you to make some highly effective changes in how you manage your money and your life. I know Dr. Tom McPhee and his terrific book, Retirement Curveball, and I do recommend it. Get the book at retirementcurveball.com or on Amazon. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Welcome, everybody, and happy to have you back on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. And... Uh, in the earlier segment, I indicated to you that uh, onwards in the show, I was going to have a real uh, treat for you. Now, look, folks, uh, how many times have you heard me interview anybody on this show? If, if you are a regular listener, I think you'll agree that it's like maybe once a year, occasionally a second time a year. But almost never do I have any guests on the show. And let me ask you something else. How many books have you heard me recommend? I quote from books in the show all the time, and uh, I talk about books. But you remember, I always say, you know what? You don't need to waste your money or your time buying that book because I'll be telling you all about it. It's very unusual. 
for me to tell you, you know what, this book belongs in your library. But today, it's true. I'm talking to the author of a book that does belong in your library. So I'm going to be very explicit. I'm going to tell you a few times during the broadcast. Uh, the name of the book is Harpoon, Inside the Covert War Against Terrorism's Money Masters. And uh, the author is a remarkable woman, an Israeli woman called Nitsana Darshan Leitner. Uh, she's uh, an Israeli, she's, she's an activist, and she's, a, she's also a lawyer, uh, but she's also one of the leading lights of something called the Israel Law Center. Uh, it's called Shrat Hadin in, in Hebrew. The word din means law. And uh, this is a fascinating organization, a fascinating woman, and an absolutely must-have book. Now, you know, you, you, you hear me saying so often that my job as your rabbi is to reveal how the world really works, that uh, you hear it so often that you probably after a while begin to think of it as just a mindless slogan, but it isn't. And that's why it is that we talk about on this show things that really matter, things you care about, things that reveal how the world really works. And that's why, although we use a lens of ancient Jewish wisdom, the fact is what we're talking about are things that impact your lives. We're talking about sex and marriage. We're talking about money. We're talking about things that really count. And occasionally we'll talk about politics as well. But, uh, but as you know, it's... That's not really the central theme of the show, because who cares, right? A lot of the time, nobody even cares about the politics. But you're going to care about this, because we all care about life and death. We all care about the cultural war going on that has been going on for a long time. And I, I don't know that my guest is necessarily will agree how I phrase things, and she'll have an opportunity to phrase them her own way in a few moments. But, uh, but to me, a, uh, a titanic cultural war between uh, the forces of Islam coupled with the forces of secular liberalism as found on the American University campus and elsewhere against the uh, culture and the civilizations created by Judeo-Christian thinking, uh, Western thought, chiefly manifested today by Israel and the United States of America. You've heard me often talk about the uh, alliance of destiny, and that alliance is between Washington and Jerusalem. And I believe it was temporarily interrupted by eight years of Obama, but I think it's back alive, perhaps better than it ever was before. And so it could hardly be a, a more wonderful time for this book to be released, and it is just being released now. This is, uh, this is really cutting-edge news. And I'm going to keep telling you the name of the book because I do seriously want you to go ahead and get hold of it. Uh, it will open your eyes. Why? Well, the way the world really works is you know, life and death are paramount, obviously. We, we're all excited when a child is born in our neighborhood or in our community or in our families. 
when a couple gets married, that speaks of, of new life and the vitality of an ongoing uh, culture, family, civilization. Uh, and then, of course, we, we react uh, appropriately with death. I mean, that, that's the essence of life. And so when terror, when terror has become a way of life to such an extent that the mayor of London can say, well, I guess that's just the price of, of civilization. We've just got to learn to live with it. Well, maybe that's good for the mayor of London, but it isn't any good for the folks in Israel. And uh, as, as you all know, I just got back from Israel two weeks ago. I usually try and write a, a new book there once a year. I try and spend five or four or five weeks there. And, uh, and terror in Israel is a really serious problem, number one, because the, the country is very, very close. People know one another and uh, are connected with one another. It's a very small country. The population is small. And, uh, and it can't function. The, the lifeblood of the country collapses when fear rules the streets. And so terror is an incredibly potent force to use against Israel. Not surprisingly, nobody has got a better handle on dealing with terrorism than Israel. Now, uh, before I introduce my guest, I just want to, to say that, uh, that the aviation industry is a really good example of the difference between the way America and the rest of the world handles things and the way Israel does. Um, Israel uh, is very different. In the United States and the rest of the world, uh, the, the concern begins when the bad guy arrives in the airport. And that's when they start uh, trying to figure out who it is. And they are handicapped by all kinds of politically correct regulations that don't allow them to use intelligence. What they're hoping to use is, is really low-level employees conducting a mechanized system which is somehow going to stop uh, the terrorist. In Israel, it works very differently. Their focus is on stopping the terrorist long before he gets to the airport long before he purchases his equipment and long before the, the plot is even finally concocted. That's the huge difference. And one of the ways this is accomplished is by being aware that like everyone else in the real world, money is needed by terrorists. And that begins to bring us to our guest, Nitsana Darshan Leitner. Thank you very much indeed. I appreciate you making the time. I know it's been difficult for me to be able to get a hold of you. You're, uh, you are appropriately busy, but I did want to share your story with my audience. Thank you very much, Rabbi, for having me. It's a real pleasure. Um, I, I had hoped to meet you while I was in Israel, but uh, as you know, that unfortunately didn't, didn't work out. But God willing, sometime in the future, I would very much like to, to greet you in person and thank you for this, this incredible book. Um, let's, uh, if you don't mind, let's just dive in. Uh, the, the basic concept, and we're going to fill it out as we move along, but the, the basic concept that, uh, that you developed along with the head of the Israel Mossad, Mayor Dag Dagan, right? Right. Uh, Dagan. The, con the concept was that... Uh, that instead of waiting till they strike, uh, track the money, find how they're financing everything, track that, and use the tools available of any kind uh, in order to 
handicap their capacity to function financially. Because in the modern world, yes, even terrorists who blow themselves up with primitive bombs, somebody needed to finance that. Money needed to flow. And so we'll talk about where the money comes from and, and how it gets to them. But let's dive into one of the most dramatic episodes that you know a great deal about. What I'm talking about is um, an episode that took place, I think it was in January 2010. And it took place in Dubai, in a hotel room, where a guy called uh, Mahmoud al-Mabouk, um, who obviously played a huge role in funding terror and organizing terror, um, checked into his hotel room in Dubai and a team of about 25 individuals uh, managed to get into his hotel room, um, inject him with a muscle relaxant, uh, suffocate him, assassinate him, and get out of the country before anyone even discovered his body. Subsequently, the police chief in Dubai uh, insisted that he was 99% sure that this was the work of the Mossad, the Israeli Mossad, and then he corrected himself a little while later and said he's 100% sure. All right, uh, that's the story that most of us remember, and that's about all we know. But you know a whole lot more. Fill us in. Well, the guy, the guy was... Um the money man of Hamas. He was very well connected. He was living in Syria and he was gathering money for Hamas to fund their terror activity. The um, money usually was coming from Iran or from Qatar. To deliver the money into the West Bank, he needed to go to a meeting point, uh, which usually was in the Persian Gulf. Um, mainly Dubai. Dubai is a very lucrative, very fancy city. Uh, this guy, Mabuk, liked going to this city to enjoy uh, the beauty of it. So one day he went to Dubai for his meeting to receive the funds Hamas so desperately needed in the West Bank and Gaza. And some other Israelis agents, um, this is according to foreign press, obviously, were following um, him into the country. They didn't know in which hotel he'll be staying, and they spread all over a couple of hotels that they thought he might go into. Finally, they tracked him in one of the hotels. They followed him from the desk to his room and saw which room he was staying. They went back to the desk and rented the room across the hall. And at nighttime, they were able and managed to get into his room and to inject him with this, um, uh, with this stuff. Um, actually, it was an injection. It was um, um, just a heart attack uh, that they caused him to have as a result of a pillow on his face. They managed to make it so clean that they put him in the bed cover him with the blankets and make him look like he's sleeping. Then what's amazing was that they were able to get out of the room and bolt and lock it from outside. 
And after a couple of hours, already uh, they were on the planes, on the flights, back to where they came from. Some came from New Zealand, some came from Europe, some came from Australia, some came from Britain, and some came from uh, Israel. Now, of course, we're not, we're absolutely not saying that Israel committed this assassination. We're only saying that uh, Dubai says that Israel was behind it, but um, we're, we're just telling you what happened, that's all. And, uh, well, Israel never admitted that uh, they were not. behind the assassination, yes. um, but they weren't sorry for uh, the right. guys who were disappeared. Of course not. Um, now, ex explain why it was so important uh, for this guy to be terminated. You see, this was unique in this new frontier on the uh, war against their financing. Israel was the first one to realize that money drives everything, including terror attacks. Without money, terrorism cannot be carried out. Terror organizations cannot function. They need money and a lot of it. So back then, in the end of the 90s, the uh, uh, former head of the Mossad, Mayor Dagan, decided that there is a need for a special force in the Israeli intelligence forces to go after money, um, after terror money. And he launched this unit called Harpoon. It was um, contained soldiers, spies, agents, but also worked with lawyers, accountants, and hackers. And they have one goal to go after the money. They have one directive, follow the money, target the money, kill the money. Money was the oxygen to the terror organizations and they were determined to choke it off. So for the first time, money men became a target. Money men were the one who were behind the attacks, that without them the attacks would not be carried on. And therefore, even if you were only a finance guy in the terror organization, if you, if you were only the bagman, if you were only a, a deputy that dealt with banks, you became a target, a very high value target, perhaps the highest value of them all. And Mabhoff happened to be one of them. Now, um, the, the, in the, in the, in the so-called uh, territories or the, the West Bank, um, cities like uh, Ramla, for instance, uh, it's a huge, sprawling city. I, I, never, I never even understood until I'd actually been there uh, what a, an absolute uh, rabbit's warren it is of roads and lanes and alleys and buildings and tunnels and... Uh, and it's, it's in that area that a lot of this is organized, that a lot, of the, um, uh, a lot of the terror is plotted and planned. And it's also there where a lot of the financial structure is, right? So there are Arab banks throughout the area, I presume, through which a lot of this money flows, right? Right, absolutely. The, uh, we call it West Bank, Judea and Samaria, where I'm going to go into... Um, who owns what at the moment. We all 
uh, understand what's our right to the country is. But um, Ramallah and Nablus and Hebron and uh, many, many cities in the West Bank have banks, have post offices, have schools, have hospitals, and have banks. And the banks are usually Jordanian banks, uh, Egyptian banks, not Israeli banks, and not international banks, but only from these countries, and Palestinian banks. And the population in the West Bank and also in Gaza um, count on these banks. This is where they save their money. This is where they take loans. This is where they uh, get their salary paid. Uh, it's all in the banking system. Now but along with them, the terror organizations in these areas using the banks as well. What is so delicate here is that uh, Israel has to destroy the financial foundation of terror, but at the same time, what you don't want to do is damage the ability of the ordinary people trying to earn a living and get through their day. You don't want to destroy their ability to function. So, right, so it, right. It, it so when Israel wanted to confiscate the money that belongs to the terror organizations, which is held in different accounts in the banks, they did not go and destroy the banks, as they did, by the way, several years later in Lebanon, when they destroyed the banks that had bank accounts for Hezbollah. Yes. They simply went and raided the banks. They took troops of soldiers and tanks and surrounded the banks, each and every bank in the West Bank. And the commander went into the bank, met with the manager of the bank, showed him pieces of papers where indication of how many in the different accounts that his bank holds belong to Hamas or Islamic Jihad. And went to the bank manager to the safe and cut that, took the money in cash from the safe that belonged according to the account that he had and gave the bank manager a receipt. Right. Well, um, quick break. And uh, when we come back, I want to uh, try, I want to try and ask you to track the money for us. In other words, uh, where does it start from its, its journey? And, uh, and one of the questions touches on some, I just got back last night from uh, Dallas, Texas, and in the suburbs of Dallas is a town called Richardson, and in Richardson is the notorious Holy Land Foundation. And uh, love to get a little bit more of a picture from you of how money flows all the way from there all the way through the system, the terrorist system, to the, to the hands, the blood money, the hands of the terrorists and to their families, which, again, this has not yet stopped that uh, funding goes to the families of people who blow themselves up in acts of terror. Uh, let's do that coming right back. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. The website, as you know, is rabbidaniellappin.com. And that's the place to contact me, send me emails. That's the place to subscribe to our mailing lists. And uh, it is, of course, the place in which you can find considerably more information uh, on anything we're talking about on the show, as well as uh, resources that we've prepared for you. All of that at rabbidaniellappin.com. A quick break, and we will be right back with Nitsana Darsha Leitner, 
Uh, Nitsana is the author of a fantastic book called Harpoon, H-A-R-P-O-O-N, right? Harpoon, because what they're doing is they're trying to harpoon this enormous monster of international Islamic terror. Uh, following the money as soon as we get back, okay? I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, back with you in a moment. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, solemnly dedicates to revealing how the world really works. And as you know, the more that things change, the more we have to depend on those things that never change. And one of those things that never changes is the role of money. And as you know, uh, unlike many cultures in which money is regarded as somehow evil and poverty is venerated as a mark of virtue, in Jewish tradition, nothing could be further from the truth. We have a great deal of respect for money because we understand the role that it plays in how the world really works. And I'm afraid that the frightening and horrible world of terror is no different. And Israel is light years ahead of the rest of the world in understanding that if you want to attack terror, yes, you need guys in ballistic armor with guns, and you need undercover spies, and you need commandos, and you need bombs, all of those things, unfortunately, absolutely vital. But you also need accountants and forensics, uh, uh, financial specialists, and you need to be able to track the blood supply of terror, which is money. And nobody knows more about that then Nitsana Darshan Leitner, who is uh, an Israeli attorney and, uh, and at the heart of something called the Israel Law Center. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But the key thing is that she's brought all this now to you in a book called Harpoon. And uh, you don't hear me recommending books. I talk about books a lot, but how often do you hear me telling you you need to buy a book? Very rarely, right? Run. Do not walk to the bookstore. The book is called Harpoon, and uh, it was actually published, I believe, just the day before I am conducting this interview with Nitsana. That's right, Nitsana, isn't it? It was published just yesterday, I think. No, it was yesterday, yes. Yeah, so I thought so. So, I mean, this may be the very first interview you've done on the book. Uh, one of the first ones. One of the first. Well, you sound great. So you, 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 you sound as if you've been doing this for years, which probably has something to do with your work. <laughs> yeah, well, as a lawyer, you have to argue before judges. You have to give speeches. Uh, so, yeah, I'm pretty uh, Well, our audience, our audience is uh, much friendlier than any judge or any courtroom. We, I'm uh, glad. <laughs> <laughs> we want we, we to hear you. Okay, so there I am in Richardson, Texas, uh, the home of the Holy Land Foundation. And the Holy Land Foundation raises money to help the widows and orphans on the West Bank. Or in, how bad can this be? Well, all this money... Go ahead, I'm sorry, Robert. No, 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 over to you. 
This money that the Holy Land Foundation was um, raising was going to the uh, Hamas organization uh, in the West Bank in Gaza. They were giving millions of dollars that were raised from the um, Muslim community in these areas in, in the United States. Um, but this money is going to a terror organization, and the terror organization does not distinguish between um, giving charity to the families or using the money for his military purposes. But the, the situation was that this money actually fueled the flames behind the uh, terror organizations. Also, this money was given to the families that um, lost their loved ones in the jihadi attacks against Israel, the families of the suicide bombers, the families of the prisoners of the terrorists that now prisoned in Israeli jail and sitting them for uh, many years. So this whole operation literally held the Hamas organization in the West Bank and Gaza. That was many, many years ago. In addition to this, add the money that was flown to the Palestinian Authority when it was just established. Remember, the European Union promised to help the Palestinian Authority to get established and committed to pay them $10 million a month. And don't think even for a moment that this money that was intended to go and help the population really went to build hospitals or schools or paved roads. It now, was now hardly, literally... If, if $10 million a month had been spent in some of the areas <laughs> that I've seen in Nablus and in uh, Hebron and in... Uh, and in uh, Ramla and also in, in Gaza, if 10 million a month was being spent on infrastructure, there'd be something to show for it. And what is more, uh, we'd find that um, Arabs wouldn't be preferring to come to Israeli hospitals. There'd be enough hospitals for them to attend there. So we know that that's not happening. Uh, right. The money, in fact, was funneled uh, predominantly into building an infrastructure of terror. Is that right? Yeah, Yasser Arafat that controlled the Palestinian Authority for at least 10, 11 years, were stealing the money, using it as uh, his own private money and diverting a lot of it to terrorism. He was awarding terrorists, he was paying the families of the terrorists, he was paying the prisoners, he was purchasing arms, he was smuggling boats full of arms into the West Bank, into Gaza. Now, how did the special military unit Harpoon, which is also the name of your book, um, how did they get so much money out of Arafat's accounts? Well, that's a hilarious story. Um, in the uh, right, uh, right into the uh, second intifada, um, it was clear that Arafat was using this money for terrorism. And uh, Mayor Dagan went to the prime minister back there, was uh, Ariel Sharon, and asked him what to do. And Ariel Sharon wasn't fond of Yasser Arafat. He refused even to shake his hand. So he gave Mayor Dagan instructions and told him, why don't you separate Arafat from his money? The Harpoon unit agents went to um, a country in South America, opened an investment fund over there and invited Muhammad Rashid, who was the financial advisor of Yasser Arafat, 
to come and watch this investment company. This is when the fund showed him how lucrative the uh, profits he can get from this investment, uh, what high interest this uh, it bears. They even showed him what personal interest, personal profit he will get if he invests money in this fund. And Muhammad Rashid was excited. So he invested a lot of Arafat's money into this investment fund. And indeed, after a short while, he got very high interest on his <laughs> money. And he yeah. did not pull the money out and invested more and more. And he got really lucrative profit in return on his money. Until one day, he called the company up and nobody answered the phone. He went to South America to check the investment company and the company simply disappeared along with Arafat's money. Talking about hundreds of millions of dollars that Arafat did not have as a result of this con game. And money that obviously would have been used to, to kill, <laughs> kill Western. Yes, it was served so good purposes later on. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it was. And um, now there is uh, one of the challenges, uh, and you, you describe this beautifully in the book, and I'd, I'd love you to just uh, give a little bit of a flavor of it for our listeners, um, is that you, you're treading very delicately all along because um, a majority of the population of Jordan is Palestinian now, and there is a sort of a relationship between Jordan and Israel uh, Royal Jordanian Airlines flies into Ben-Gurion Airport. Uh, Israeli Airlines fly from Ben-Gurion Airport into Amman. There's something of a relationship. So you've got a challenge now. Harpoon had a problem, which is they've got to do something about these banks. They've got to do something about the financial network that underpins terror. But how do they do that without upsetting the King of Jordan? <laughs> Yeah, this was uh, this was really hard. Um, they went uh, they went and talked in the beginning to uh, to to people in the Jordanian government um, because the uh, banks in the uh, in the West Bank were controlled by this uh, um, by the Jordanian government. They all were Jordanian banks. Uh, the Arab Bank, which was the major bank in the West Bank. Uh, through it, hundreds of millions of dollars were going to the uh, terror organizations and the families of the suicide bombers uh, was a Jordanian bank, uh, was owned by the Jordanian kingdom. Um, and therefore, they, uh, after they raided the banks, which uh, created uh, a whole uh, catastrophe um, through the uh, American government, were absolutely unpleased from this situation, uh, Mayor Dagan decided to provide the information that yeah, he got. Just to remind everybody, Mayor Dagan was the head of the Israeli Mossad. So uh, yeah. when, uh, when Nitzan right. speaks about Mayor Dagan, that's who it is. Absolutely. Thank you, Rabbi. And um, he uh, decided to uh, give all this information to uh, um, private lawyers that perhaps can go and use it for their litigation against the terror organizations and those countries that support them. 
And at the time, there were a lot of uh, um, lawsuits um, that we filed against, we in Shuratadin, uh, filed against the Hamas, <clears throat> against Islamic Jihad, against Iran, against Syria, against banks that provide them with financial services. And these documents were very uh, important to show um, as evidence in, this, in the courtrooms. And eventually, um, these cases ended in a way, but sent a shockwave through the international banking system. We didn't even have to wait until the cases were over for the banks to change the way they're doing businesses. The banks immediately learned their lesson to the extent that no bank agreed anymore to open bank accounts to a designated organization. No bank agreed to provide financial services to an Islamic charity, right, like the Highland Foundation that identifies with terror organization. And no bank agreed to operate in terror zones like South Lebanon, like Gaza. And there is no banking system in these places anymore, which makes uh, um, difficulties, tremendous difficulties, to the terror organization that control these areas. Um, uh, let me just ask you this, by the way. This, I mean, this is a fabulous story. It really, it's an absolutely fantastic story. Uh, the name of your book is called Harpoon: Inside the Covert War Against Terrorism's Money Masters, and it's an unbelievably exciting read. Uh, believe me, I assure you, you're going to pick this, <laughs> pick this book up, and it's one of those one-reading books. Your spouse is going to be asking you at one o'clock in the morning, when are you going to sleep? Because you're still going to be reading Harpoon. Uh, at least that's what happened to Susan and me, I'll tell you that. But um, a question, uh, Nitsana, can we go one more segment or are you pushed for time? Um, we can do a short one. Okay, then we're, we're going to do a quick break and uh, uh, we're going to come back and uh, I'm I'm going to ask you about social media because who on earth thinks that social media is part of the war against terrorism or part of the conducting of terrorism? But uh, you were among the, the people who did recognize this, and I'm going to want to just get a little more of a picture on that. Uh, the author of Harpoon, Nitsana Darshan Leitner, with me here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Our website is rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, right there, you will find a resource that we've prepared for you called uh, Clash of Destiny, Decoding the Secrets of Israel and Islam. Uh, that is at rabbidaniellappin.com, along with an opportunity to subscribe to Thought Tools, which you get every week. So uh, head on over to rabbidaniellappin.com and do what you know you have to do. I'll be back with you in just a moment together with our guest. Don't go away. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. The Morning Blaze with Doc Thompson. Well, most Americans, even conservatives, have this failure. They know their rights. They even know rights they don't have. I know my rights. They'll talk about the government must do this for me. But they fail to know their responsibility to take accountability for their actions, not society's, for their actions. And if you do, then society as a whole will not have the breakdown we have been experiencing. The Morning Blaze, weekday morning, 6 to 9 Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. 
With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Okay, everybody, we're back for one uh, final segment with the author of a fabulous book. It's a must-read book. You need to order it right away. It's called Harpoon. Honestly, you don't hear me saying that very often. I've been stressing it during the show just because I do want you to to remember that this is not a huckster-type show. Uh, you know, I'm not constantly uh, telling you this book is the best thing you've ever read or that book's the best thing you've ever read or you've got to go along and, and listen. You know, here's an author. I, I, I think this might be the second author I've interviewed in the last, I'm going to say the last two years, honestly. Uh, so I really don't do this often. I only do it when I know that you're not going to say to me afterwards, why did you tell us to buy that book? But you're going to say... Thank you for recommending that book. This book is one of those. It's called Harpoon, the Inside the Covert War Against Terrorism's Money Masters. And <laughs> the book's got everything, by the way. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's, it's cloak and dagger. It's behind the scenes. It's tough guys, very, very tough guys, uh, tough women, uh, smart men and women. And uh, it gives you a glimpse really a glimpse into how Israel operates. I mean, because when you think about it, isn't it a miracle? 70 years of this they've put up with now. For 70 years, since their founding in 1948, the next year we'll be celebrating the 70th and a birthday of Israel. For 70 years, they've been surrounded by people 20 times their population and more. That's just the contiguous neighbors uh, who are trying to terminate their existence. People who, in exchange for all the riches of the world, will not grant Israel the right to exist. That's what you're dealing with. I mean, have you any idea of what it would be like if Canada and Mexico were both dedicated to the destruction of the United States? Uh, Well, it's a whole lot worse because of the disparity in population and size and wealth uh, between the Islamic world and the state of Israel. How does Israel survive? Well, Uh, You know me already. I I think a good part of the answer is a miracle. But God works miracles through amazing people very often, if not all the time. And uh, some of the amazing people are the topic of this book by my guest, Nitsana Darshan Leitner. The book is Harpoon. And it really will fill you with a sense of amazement at, uh, at what this tiny little country managed to pull off, manages to pull off every day. And you'll thrill to some of these stories. It'll blow your mind, absolutely blow your mind. And um, Nitsana, thanks so much for, for being on the show. I, I'm just thrilled that we have an opportunity to chat for a few minutes. And uh, one of the... Uh, one of the sort of hidushim, we call it in Hebrew, one of the insights, one of the new ideas that, that had to be uh, brought home to, to a, a reluctant world was that uh, terrorism isn't only about bombs and bullets. It's also about dollars and yen and dinars and uh, all kinds of currencies. Uh, in other words, money is as much of a part of the war on terror as is as are bullets and bombs. That's part of the story of this book, and it's absolutely fascinating. But what sent a shiver down my spine 
was that what you also say is, you kind of say, and you'll correct me if I don't have this exactly right, but what I took away from it was you said, well, uh, today everyone is now finally beginning to realize that money is part of the war on terror. Tomorrow they are going to discover that social media is part of it as well. If I have that right, what do you mean? Yeah, you have it absolutely right, Rabbi. We live in a time that the social media is in every house. Everybody's using it, including the terrorists. We live in a time that you will find thousands of posts calling to kill, in our case, Jews. Pages named Stab the Jews. Videos illustrating how to stab, how to twist the knife, where exactly to slaughter the Jew diagram of human's body, what to do. And all the terrorists that are involved in recent terror attacks in recent years have Facebook page and they get posts that inciting them to go and kill. They themselves break that they are going to become Shahid. And after they go and stab, you'll find tens of thousands of posts endorsing their act, glorifying it, encouraging others to follow them. So there is no question that the, our case, the social media, Facebook, become a tool in the hands of the terror organizations to the extent that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu called this recent wave of terrorism in Israel the Facebook Intifada. The terror organizations are using the social media as a platform for everything they do. And if we're talking about Hamas, it's no different than ISIS. ISIS is using the uh, Google platform YouTube to deliver their messages, to send these beheading videos, which in the end inciting and encouraging people from all over the world to join them, showing them what they can do, what they can benefit. Otherwise, how people from Austria, from Switzerland can know about ISIS, know to go all the way to Turkey, cross the border to Iraq and Syria and join the military forces over there. So the new front of the terrorism is in the social media. They're using the social media to recruit militants, to raise funds. Hezbollah just recently launched a crowdsourcing campaign on Facebook, something it was able never to do in any other platform. They're using it to spread their ideology, spread their propaganda, and as a result of it, people getting killed. Every terror attack that happened recently, talking about the past two to three years, started in the social media. And this is the new front. This is what the intelligence forces in Israel and in Western countries have to fight next. What do you think, what do you think they, uh, that America uh, most needs to understand? What, what is the, the one thing that America doesn't get, the most important thing that this uh, country doesn't understand or doesn't get? What America doesn't understand, America has a law. Um, it's called Communication Decency Act. It's a law that grants blanket immunity to the social media networks. And it was a good law, you know. Congress wanted to keep the internet open and it could not find 
um, every social media network liable for content that users are posting on their pages. So the grant blanket immunity to these social media networks, but the social media giants are using this immunity and they letting this organization use them as any other tool in the war because they say we are not getting involved. We are immune. We cannot have be uh, we cannot be responsible or accountable for anything that goes on. And quite frankly, our business model is to keep it open, to keep it this way, to encourage everyone from any kind and sort to use our platform. The American um, administration has to understand that this has to stop, that they have to find ways to limit the social media networks. We already hear voices coming up from Europe to this, um, on this issue. Prime Minister of Britain, uh, Theresa May, already say that if, if the social media networks, meaning Twitter, Google, YouTube, will not change their policy and will not limit posts of terrorism and videos of terrorism on their platform, they will have to regulate them. Same thing came out from the Foreign Ministry of the European Union because they understand that this post caused people to go and kill. They connect between, uh, between each other. They connect between those who incite to kill to those who finally go and do it. They teach people how to, um, how to create explosives, how to create a bomb, what exactly they need to do in order to go and, and run over pedestrians in a mall. It's a devastating tool, and the American who owns the internet, and I say it in a, in a ridiculous manner, but what can you do? I can, and the Ministry of Industry own the uh, internet, have to limit these social media networks. Um, otherwise, it will create more and bigger disaster. You know, things change, and it's very, very hard uh, to bring about change. Uh, they say that one of the reasons that the uh, Israelites had to stay in the desert for 40 years was because you cannot introduce freedom to a people who have slavery still implanted in their hearts. The whole generation had to die. And, uh, and the same is true in the world of science, where uh, scientific ideas like the old model of the atom, it took years and years and years before the true model was accepted because all the people who were deeply invested in the old model basically had to die before the world was ready for the new one. In America, there are certain implanted ideas, hostility to, to censorship, uh, freedom of expression, etc., etc., etc. What we're talking about here is that some of this may have to be curtailed. It, at least the, the, the discussion is going to have to be held uh, in order to, uh, to prevent something far worse, which is a force that is absolutely intent on the end of America and on the end of Israel. But when we, when we talk about regulating social media, um, no American feels comfortable about it. But I think we all feel a lot less comfortable about being blown up. More to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing how the world really works. On demand on the Blaze Radio Network. The Glenn Beck Program. 
Do you see anybody sitting down and saying, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. All right, let's look at history. Let's really look at history. Let's have this conversation. Is this your priority? We're so free of problems that we can sit down and say, you know, that statue in the park. Let's get down to that. We're so free of problems that that's what we're spending our time on. Wow. The Glenn Beck Program. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand, only on the Blaze Radio Network. (laughs) Exactly. There is uh, a balance between freedom of speech, between the freedom of the Internet, something the American endured, to to the right to live safely uh, with your life being protected, and that nobody will attack you as a result of incitement that they observe in the social media. It's right now in the courts. Uh, we have several lawsuits going on against Google, YouTube, and um, Twitter and Facebook on behalf of terror victims. Some terror victims from Israel that were killed or injured by Hamas. Some victims from Paris attack and Brussels attack victims of ISIS all have the same allegation that the social media allowed the terror organizations to use them as platform and therefore violates an American law which prohibits American companies to provide any sort of services to a designated organization, any type of support, any type of material support of services. This is aiding and abetting terrorism. And since the social media networks know that these organizations are using that platform, they're doing it actually intentionally and knowingly. And therefore, they are liable and they are responsible and carry civil and criminal liability for these victims. So we have cases going on in the Federal District Court of New York and California for billions of dollars against these social media giants being litigated. And indeed, the major question is, what would govern? What will rule? What will be the end result? It will go all the way to the Supreme Court because it's a very hard and constitutional issue to deal with. What should be it? The freedom of speech, freedom of the Internet, or the right of the people to live safely in their land? And the, uh, your, your organization, Shurat Hadim, the Israel Law Center, uh, is engaged in, in precisely this kind of lawsuit. As an attorney, do you have a feel for what the chances are of these plaintiffs prevailing against the social media giants? Well, we believe that we can win the cases. We believe that uh, in the end the court will find the uh, social media networks responsible, accountable, because in the end, social media have sexual responsibility. They cannot just let uh, these words uh, kill innocent people. But um, I also believe that the legal process is important because I truly expect the um, um, directors and the owners of these social media networks to go and change their policy even before the cases will end. Before the cases will come to an end, they will realize that it's not worth their while to continue and support the terror organizations, even if they're doing it unintentionally. If they really don't mean that, 
they will find the algorithm, they will find the tools to change their policy, to track this incitement and to take it down because it's not worth yeah. having yeah. billions of dollars in damages eventually ruled against you. And it's not worth having judgments on behalf of terror victims claiming that you are aiding and abetting the terrorism. So we really are, are we are going to be seeing very major changes in uh, in in how things function, and uh, social media is part of that. I know that we are running out of time, and it's it's very very late for you, and you've been so busy, and you've been so uh, not only kind, but you've been you've sounded wonderful, you sound fresh and passionate, and uh, and the book is like that, folks. The second book, it is literally the second book I've recommended you purchase in the last two years. So um, it's called Harpoon. Uh, pop right onto your uh, computers, head over to Amazon or Barnes & Noble or wherever you like you're buying your books. Books Harpoon, Inside the Covert War Against Terrorism's Money Masters. It'll excite you. You won't be able to put it down, but it'll also inspire you. And it'll also widen your horizons, understanding how the world really does work. And uh, I'm, I hate letting you go, so li I've just I've got to ask you this. We always think about the terror nexus as being Israel and the United States. And yes, we've seen horrible stuff going on in, in Sweden and in the United Kingdom and obviously in France. And, uh, and it's, always, it's always Islamic terror. But um, you, you alarmed me in the book where you mentioned countries like Canada and Venezuela. Give us a, a quick, like, what have they got to do with all of this? These are places that Hezbollah or other terror organizations find very comfortable to work, to go and work and to go and act and to go and operate. Hezbollah runs its trafficking, uh, drug trafficking um, campaigns uh, in Venezuela, in South America, even in places in Africa, places that have no rule, that nothing governs there, open uh, widely to a uh, terror organization to go and operate. Um, and in Canada, it's being used by Hezbollah for their uh, financial uh, infrastructure. Um, it's less, it's not as wild as South uh, America, uh, but yet Hezbollah have very uh, long and deep ties in Canadian land. And you know, it depends on the government, depends if the government designates uh, Hezbollah um, and it fights it. And it very much depends on the community as well. If the population uh, in Canada um, uh, is Muslim extremists or a lot of immigrants, um, tens of thousands of immigrants that are coming from Syria, coming from Lebanon, coming from Iraq, coming in places that uh, endorse a, a Hezbollah, the government will act accordingly. So we really hope that these countries will understand that terrorism will not skip their land as it didn't skip United States and European countries. And hopefully we'll start taking steps to eliminate the terrorism from their land as well. One last question. Can we do one last one? One last one. All right. Um, when I, I spoke in, uh, in a church in Dallas this last Sunday, somebody came up to me afterwards and uh, spoke about uh, tremendous problems that he's having with his daughter. She's away at college, 
And uh, I discussed a little bit. And then I said, but wait a second. Let me understand. She's living in an apartment uh, and she's paying tuition. Who, wh where is she getting the money to do that? And uh, he said, well, you know, my wife and I give her. And he, he spoke about a fairly large sum every month. And I said, well, then I really don't understand. If you're paying the bills, why can't you turn off that tap? I mean, she's, she's violating everything you believe in. Why are you continuing to fund it? He said, I've never thought about that. He said, it's, it sort of feels a little bit, a little bit wrong to, uh, to, to, to use money as a tool. Well, terrorists use money as a tool, obviously, but uh, money is a reality, absolutely, very much a reality. So we, we started off the interview with a very exciting story about the assassination of Mahmoud al-Mabou in Dubai, and uh, obviously Dubai and probably the rest of the world too thinks uh, that the Israeli Mossad did it. Let's say whoever did it knew exactly what they were doing and they pulled off an absolutely flawless job, but we don't know really who it is. Uh, let's finish off with another exciting story and uh, uh, one of the many, many exciting stories in your outstanding book is how three years ago when, uh, when uh, Gaza was shooting rockets o all over Israel and sending killers through tunnels into Israeli settlements, uh, one of the things that, that Israel did was um, they managed to destroy a huge sum of cash that was on its way to be used as salaries for suicide bombers and suicide terrorists. Uh, just give us the quick overview, if you would, on, on that operation. The name of the guy was, he was um, a messenger that Hamas sent as a desperate act to get some money into the Gaza Strip. Have to remember that in the time of the war, Hamas was still uh, was supposed to pay money to the militants. All the combatants were relying on Hamas. The families of the combatants were relying on Hamas to give them uh, the food, to give them the, man the, uh, the services they need, um, and Hamas ran out of money. Hamas needed to pay millions of dollars to the families in order to continue the fight, and they simply did not have one. So they sent this guy to Egypt to raise some money, and he came with a suitcase full of $13 million in cash. But the Harpoon unit tracked him down, um, and from the air shoot a missile towards his car. All the uh, money were incinerating into the air, um, and he obviously got uh, killed. That was the uh, blow for the uh, Hamas organization that brought to the uh, end of the war because they simply could not continue with this cash. One of the countless uh, very exciting stories and, and absolutely true stories. And uh, the amazing thing, I, I must tell you, reading your book, Nitsana, I'm astounded that you were able to tell so many of these stories. I would have thought that Israeli security and military senses, I would have thought that uh, I, I, I can hardly believe that so much of this is a, able to be brought um, to the public in your incredible book. And I'm very pleased because it's, 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 it's encouraging for us to see how successfully uh, Israel is uh, prosecuting the war against terror uh, by uh, strangling 
its money supply. But um, I'm sure you have many, many, many more stories you cannot tell us, but uh, the ones you can are, are really good enough. So uh, thanks so much for doing this book. Thank you for being on the show. And um, anything at all I can do to, to help you, uh, don't hesitate. I'm, I'm happy to do so. Thank you very much, Rabbi. It really was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Terrific. And, uh, and uh, we'll say goodbye to Nitsana Darshan-Leitner, the author of Harpoon, Inside the Covert War Against Terrorism's Money Masters. Uh, it was published on November the 7th, 2017. So it's brand new. For those of you who are listening to the show uh, live, it's very, very new. And uh, now is the time to head out and get your copy. And I know the book's going to be an incredible hit. So uh, you just watch those numbers drop on Amazon while you order yours. Um, we are uh, going to pause for a moment. The website is rabbidaniellappin.com. And I'll be back with you in just a moment. Spilling ancient solutions for modern problems in the areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. The Morning Blaze with Doc Thompson. Bar in Gainesville, Florida had closed, but 27-year-old Casey Wiley wouldn't leave. A bouncer tried to remove her, but she refused to leave. And by refused, I mean she assaulted him with a 12-pack of Paps Blue Ribbon. Wow, that is cruel and unusual punishment. The bouncer didn't want to press charges. She was arrested, though, for disorderly conduct. Wow. <laughs> was she hot? Uh, I don't know. She was 27, so better chance. The Morning Blaze. Weekday morning, 6 to 9 Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Your rabbi again. And uh, yes, I hope you enjoyed that interview. And uh, again, my apologies. I know the audio um, on that long distance call wasn't great, but uh, I, I hope that the material more than made up for it. And I know that if you get a chance to see this book, uh, I think you will be, um, you, you will find it encouraging and you'll find it. Uh, revealing it, uh, it it'll show you that uh, the good guys sometimes do win um, I started off uh, with uh, uh, two anniversaries it was an anniversary of Kristallnacht the night in November 1938 when the Nazis uh, made clear uh, that their plan was to terrorize the population and uh, and and they really revealed that they were creatures of the left uh, the uh, other anniversary, of course, was the Bolshevik Revolution. It's 100 years since November uh, 1917, and, uh, and that was a significant date. It's also 500 years since another very significant date, and that is the start of Protestantism. Martin Luther in uh, Germany in the year uh, 1517. And so... Uh, that has had an enormous impact on the world. Uh, obviously, I'm not a theologian, I'm not a Christian, and so I'm not going to delve into uh, what the Protestant uh, Revolution meant, what the Reformation meant to the Catholic Church. But as far as the world is concerned, uh, the world has been every bit as much shaped by Protestantism as it had been by Catholicism. And... Uh, it's rather remarkable when you think about it today. Uh, 
and I'll talk about this a little more down the road, but when you uh, superimpose a map of Africa with mylars showing pockets of Protestantism, and by the way, Protestantism in Africa, we're not just talking South Africa, Zimbabwe, um, Zambia, Ghana, Nigeria, Kenya, and in some of these places, we're talking about churches with 20,000 people worshiping. So Protestantism thriving in parts of Africa, and if you superimpose on a map of Africa a mylar of Protestant revival, along with another mylar of economic vitality, uh, you w- if, you're, if you've listened to me for a while, you won't be shocked to hear that those two mylars correspond. And that pockets of Protestantism, Protestant activism in Africa correspond to those parts of those countries that have been burgeoning with economic activity. It's very, very interesting, and uh, I have spoken before about the linkage between uh, Protestantism and economic activity. I'm not the first person uh, to think about that. Of course, Max Weber wrote uh, Protestantism and the, uh, the uh, Capitalism and the Protestant Work Ethic, obviously. So uh, people do understand this topic. It's something that has been discussed. But at any rate, uh, that brings us close to the end of this show for today. I hope you've enjoyed it. If so, please let me know at rabbidaniellappin.com. That's my website, rabbidaniellappin.com. While you're there, make sure you read about an audio program called Clash of Destiny, Decoding the Secrets of Israel and Islam. Uh, following up on the material in the interview I did, I think you'll find that it all comes together and sheds light on what has been going on. So until we are together next week, I am your rabbi. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, wishing you a week of prosperity and good health in the reverse order. God bless. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. <laughs>